As I was sitting there thinking, I was thinking that there's people in this room that I've known for over 45 years, and I realized that there's at least one person I've known for over 50 years. And yes, I am that old. I met Marshall when he came to my parents' house when I was very young. And I'm younger than Marshall, but all right. If you would turn to Revelations 2, as you're turning, I will uh, share something personal, which I don't do often, but I will share with you. And when often when I go to speak someplace, they often ask me what, there's a particular hymn I, they want me to have sung before I get up. And my answer is usually no, and almost always is no, because I trust that the Holy Spirit has laid something on my mind that the person choosing the hymns, if they're in the spirit, and I believe they are, will also have the hymn that's necessary be laid on their mind. And then ever so often, the Lord has to remind me, and I decide that I don't have enough faith. And, and I was speaking at a conference, and the song leader asked me if I had a particular hymn. And being of little faith, I guess that day I said yes, and I chose the hymn. Well, he um, was used to having favorites given out. And so sure enough, he asked for favorites. And the first favorite given out was the hymn I asked to speak, to have him give out. So it was like the Lord was telling me that I didn't have any faith, and he, I just needed to trust the Spirit to be working. So uh, it was a little bit of putting me on the spot to ask me to, to have a hymn. It's interesting that the second to the last hymn that was given out actually fits very well with the topic that we're going to look at tonight. The hymn I gave out is one I think could very well fit also, but it's one of my favorite hymns, so sometimes you just have to resort to favorites. If you turn to Revelation 2, we're going to start again with the second church, the second church of Revelations 2. We discussed Ephesus this morning, and now we're going to move on to the second church, and so we're going to start with verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, for thou art rich, and of the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days, but thou faith but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto him, unto the churches, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And we'll trust the Lord to add the blessing to the reading of his word. So we come to Smyrna, and Smyrna is the suffering church. Is the suffering church. And so as we look at Smyrna, the city was the second largest to Ephesus, was the second richest to Ephesus. But as Ephesus has ceased to exist, Smyrna still is in existence today. It was known for the perfume that it manufactured. And in the Bible, we know this perfume as myrrh. If you're familiar with myrrh, you know that it's a sweet perfume and it comes by crushing to produce the oil. Now, I want to look at a couple passages in the Old Testament about myrrh before we get into this, just to get an idea of what myrrh is. It was used in the Old Testament um, worship in Exodus 30 and verse 23. 
It says this. You don't have to turn to these. I'll read them to you. Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half as much, even 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive, and hen. And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So we see that myrrh was used there. And then we read about it in Song of Solomon. It was a, it was a common perfume. And Song of Solomon says this in 3.6, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all powder, powders of the merchant? And then also in Psalms, we see that our heavenly bridegroom is going to have this on him. Psalms 45, 8 says, All thy garments smell of myrrh and alloys and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. And so the Lord Jesus, and I think it speaks of suffering and being crushed. And so the myrrh would speak of suffering and being crushed. Now, as I said earlier, each church introduces Christ in a different aspect. So in this one, he that happened, uh, sorry, in verse 8, and unto the angels of the church of Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. The first and the last, which is a dead and which is alive. And first off, he's presented as Christ the eternal one. Christ the eternal one. Particularly when we're facing suffering, the fact that Christ is eternal is very, very important. And it relates to time and eternity, and I think it's important. He's eternal God. I mean, we stopped and thought about that, that this, the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal God. I think I sometimes grasp eternity. I was a young kid, and I went to a, a, a gospel meeting and the preacher talked about a seashore and I'd been, to, I'd been down to the beach and been to the sea and he said if a bird came back once a year and took away a piece of sand after all the sand was gone eternity would just barely begin and I, I couldn't count the number of piece, pebbles of sand I had in my hand when I held them in my hand so I knew boy that's like almost more than I can think of and that lasts a long time but then when I start thinking about eternity past well, that just overwhelms me, and I have to stop thinking about it. It's just longer than I can imagine. And so he's presented here as the eternal one. Now you can turn to Isaiah 48, if you would. Isaiah 48 and verse Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. All ye assemble yourselves, and hear which, which among them hath declared these things. The Lord, hath said, loved, the Lord hath loved him, and he will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on, on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken, yea, I have called him, I have brought him, and shall make his way prosperous. 
Verse 16, come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that was, there I am. And now the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me. And so this is Jehovah speaking. And it's Jehovah who de defines himself as I am he, I am the first and the last. And so when we come to Revelation and Jesus Christ says, I am the first and the last, he's defiant, he's de telling us that he is the Jehovah of the Old Testament, that that is who he is. And so... This is an interesting passage because also notice then in verse 12, we see, or verse 13, we see him as a creator. As a creator. So he's the first and the last, but he's also the one who's created. And then if you'll notice as you go down a little farther in verse 16, we see the Trinity. Some people have a hard time recognizing the Trinity when it's presented. Well, here's an Old Testament passage where the Trinity is, is, is presented. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time it was, there I am. And now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. And so we have the speaker who said he's the first and the last. We have the Lord God as a sender. And then we have the spirit also as a sender. So we have the speaker who's the first and the last. God himself, the creator of this world. You have the Lord God who sent the speaker, clearly also God. And then we have the spirit of God as a third person and the person one of, it, of one of the senders. And so we see here the tribulation. If you turn over to um, Isaiah 61, we see the tribulation again in the Old Testament. And if, you, if you're using a King James, it's easy to see when, if it's all capital L-O-R-D, that's really the word for Jehovah also. So the Lord God is speaking of the Father while this person who's speaking is also con considered and called the Lord. So the, in, in, in Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the openings of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. So we see, to appoint unto me that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees in righteousness, the planting, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So we have the spirit of the Lord, we have the, the speaker again who proclaims himself to be Lord, and then we have the Lord God himself. So we have, we have three different characters all mentioned in the same passage, all in the Old Testament. Now let's go back. Let's go back to uh, Revelation. Sorry. So we see himself proclaimed as the first and the last. That's Jehovah of the Old Testament. He does, but he doesn't end there. Notice, secondly, what he declaimed. He that which was dead and is alive. And what this brings before us is incarnation. He came, he lived, he died. He willingly became subject to the rejection and persecution of men. So the one who just proclaimed that he's the first and the last, that he's eternal, he also tells us that he came to this earth to die. And that he died, but that, that he stayed dead, but that we died and now he is alive. 
The grave could not hold Christ, and the church at Smyrna could anticipate the same victory over the grave. So notice he's presented in his resurrection power. And anytime they're suffering, resurrection is always the, the thing that's encouraging, is that eat, the worst man can do to you is take away your life. Chad Meshach and Abednego are a great example of that because they stand before the king and they say, we're going to choose our words carefully. Our God is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace, but he will deliver us from you. The worst they could do was be take his life, but their life was eternal. All they could take was their physical life because they had eternal life. And so we come before us the eternality of Jesus Christ, but we also have before us the incarnation that he came and he died. And, and this picture of Christ is meant as a great encouragement to the church at Smyrna because they are the persecuted church. Let's look at the next verse. Says, I know thy works and tribulations and poverty, and I know the blaspheme of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogues of Satan. There's two churches of the 70 that are not reprimanded, are not corrected. There's no, re, there's no um, discipline issue, and this is one of them. And I think it's important to understand that. And it's important to understand that he's aware, notice he's aware of their tribulation. He's aware of their tribulation. Sometimes, when we're going through difficult times, we somehow think that God's absent or he's not there. And it's simply not true. He is aware of the tribulation. And the idea here of this word tribulation is pressure. You ever felt pressure from things around you, pressure of coming in? This is, this is real pressure. This is life or death pressure for these folks. Now, if you look at the life of Christ, it's an exercise of trial and suffering. I come across Christians who don't want any trial and don't want any suffering. If they go through any of it, they look at God and say, what? You don't love me. You forgot me. Why am I going through this difficult time? But if you look at the life of Christ, it was trial and suffering all the way to the cross, including at the cross. And why? Did he need, was there something in him that needed to be corrected? Was there something in him that needed to be perfected? No. But if you'll turn to Hebrews 5, 9, we're going we're gonna to look at that and see exactly what he says about that. Five eight. And we see that Christ was made perfect in the just results in the glory of man, of what he was morally. What this brought out was his perfections. So Hebrews 5 and 8, Though he were a son, yet he learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Just like the fragrance comes from the myrrh when it was crushed, what we get from Jesus Christ is the glory of God. It it showed forth his moral character under the pressure. We look, we read his life, and, and, and it's amazing how he held up under the tribulation and the suffering that he went through. However, there's another reason for suffering. If you turn over to James 1, James tells us there's a reason that we suffer. Sometimes 
It's to show us and bring out the glory of God. However, sometimes we do it to hinder the tendency to stray, to turn us back to the Lord Jesus himself. And James would tell us this. James 1 and 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But patience, let patience have a perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Turn over to 1 Peter 5, and we'll look at another verse in this regard. A couple of pages over, 1 Peter 5, 10. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto the eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The truth of the matter is that the purest Christian graces are those formed in the furnace of adversity. We sing a song, Jesus, I am resting, resting. It's easy to rest on the Lord Jesus when everything's going well. It's much harder to rest on his goodness when things are going through trials. However, it's something we all, I think, need to come to grips with and to learn. The church at Smyrna displayed the purity that comes from enduring persecution. Once again, this is the only one that is not corrected or rebuked because it the suffering refined it. We live in a day and age where I went to the Elders and Workers Conference in Miami and, and we have a prayer session every morning and several of the prayers was for the situation with ISIS and for the Christians there and it's something we should be prayed but, but several people spoke of the fear they have of, of something like that happening. We're going through court cases right now where it might be difficult to, for some people to keep their businesses as Christians. We're working in a society where there could be real persecution coming. And I don't think we should fear it because I think it would refine the church. And I think it would test people's faith and we'd find out those who are going through the motions and those who have true faith. And yet everybody I read, everybody I hear about says, no. If you would, okay, let's, let's go there now. Um, I'm going to skip ahead in these notes. Let's turn to Luke 22, if you would. Turn to Luke 22. There's a conversation between the Lord Jesus and Simon, Luke 22 and verse 31. It says this, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith, not, <clears throat> that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now notice that the Lord does not pray that Peter would not be sifted. That's often, unfortunately, our prayer, that we not go through trials, that we not be sifted, that we not go through difficult times. 
But notice when he does pray that the Lord prayed that his faith would not fail, knowing full well that it would not fail. Knowing full well that it would not fail. Romans 5 is a great passage on that. It's not, it's not out of, Christ leads us and strengthens us and teaches us through the trial. Every time we run from a trial, we learn nothing. And too often, we run. We don't want to face a trial, so we run. And when we're done running, as, as Romans 5 clearly tells us, what do we learn? Nothing. But if we go through the trial, what do we find out? That God is faithful who promised to keep us and to multiply his grace unto us. All right, back to Revelation 2. If I didn't tell you, always keep your spot in the passage we're in because we're going to go back there. My wife reminds me of that ever so often. I forget to, I forget to remind you folks, so I will remind you of that. And so he says in verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. And this poverty is, is abject poverty. This is as poor as you can get. They were being persecuted for being Christians. They were unable to work. They were not able to even meet their basic needs. But notice what he says, but thou... Thou art rich. Thou art rich. Rich in what? It wasn't this world's goods, but thou art rich. James 2.5 says this, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? 2 Corinthians 6.10 says this, as Paul says, A sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. They didn't have this world's goods, but they had so much more. They had so much more. Sometimes it's this world's goods that needs to be removed out of the picture for us to see Christ clearly. Our vision is obscured. Sometimes sing a song that the things of this earth might grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And sometimes it's through suffering that the things of this earth grow strangely dim. And they had other problems here. Verse 10. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. And so here we see the one who's the accuser of the brethren casting them into prison. But then we see this promise. And are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So, and I have, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a page. Um, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, verse 9, but are the synagogue of Satan. These weren't true Jews. Romans 2, 28 and 29 would tell us this. For he's not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is out of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. So these people might have been of Jewish descent, but they weren't true Jews because they weren't following God. The idea of the synagogue is they gathered together in cohorts to persecute and to form 
ways of persecuting the Christians. And, we, and the synagogue was a place of meeting. So they meet, they, and, and they are the synagogue of Satan. It's under the leadership and the rule of Satan. It's Satan's driving that. I personally believe that the persecution, if it comes to the church from the current society that we live in, is being driven by Satan. And he wants that victory. And most of the world is following along with that deceitfulness that that sin particularly is, is something you inherit, and it's not a chosen sin. And I think the Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a chosen, is something you choose. It's not something you inherit. All right, now we can go on to verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. So he's commended them for being faithful and during persecution. Now he, and he warns them that more persecution is coming. And then he commands them not to fear what is coming. Literally to stop fearing. Stop fearing. It would be so great if we could stop fearing. I think fear is, is one of our problems. We don't witness because of fear. We don't speak about our faith sometimes because of fear. The command here is to stop fearing. Here's a church under heavy persecution, and the command is to stop fearing. But notice what else he says. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Oh, wow. So I'm going to stop fearing because I'm going to be cast into prison. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense, does it? I should fear being cast into prison. No, stop fearing. He's going to tell you up front what's going to happen. The devil's going to cast some of you... Uh, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you will have tribulation for ten days. And ten days speaks of the time period. It's a time period. There is a beginning and an end. Now, in Roman history, there were ten different edicts that were sent out to persecute the church. But the specific is in ten days. The idea is that this too shall pass. And let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, I think it's four. That's what happens. When, or Second Corinthians, I think four. Let me. Uh, yeah, let's look at Second Corinthians four. God was testing this church at Smyrna. And the outcome would be that they were not to fear that the testing was going to continue, but it would be for a short amount of time. If you read the whole chapter 4, you read about how terrible Paul was, but we're going to pick it up. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 8 because I can't skip it. Sorry. We have troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Pretty tough. Paul had it pretty tough. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Paul was near death or had died and been resurrected on a number of occasions. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith according to his written, I believe, therefore have I spoken. We also believed and therefore speak. And here's the key. 
And here's what's important, and here's what Paul realized, and why Paul did not fear. He says, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Paul looked forward to eternal life. And he knew he had eternal life. And it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ which proved he had eternal life. Just like Jesus Christ's character here. He's, he died, but he lives. It's a resurrection which gives us the hope to press on when tribulation hits. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many rebound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction is but for a moment. Paul suffered more than almost anybody I know, and yet he could say it was light affliction. I don't know if the church here at Smyrna would say it's light affliction. But the Spirit wants them to know that it's 10 days. It's going to be but for a moment. Most of us, if we had to suffer in a hospital bed 10 days or do something suffering for 10 days, we'd be greatly relieved and we could see the end of the light at the tunnel in 10 days. And so the 10 days is to let them know that it's but for a moment. But for Paul, listen to what Paul says. Our light affliction was but for a moment worketh for us a far more great and exerting, exceeding and eternal weight of glory because Paul looked at things from an eternal perspective. And the suffering he was going on in this earth was extremely short to the amount of all eternity. And so he, he compares the suffering he's going through here to the eternity and to the in the light of eternity. And I have to admit I don't do that often enough. I haven't suffered a lot. I know people in this room have suffered far more than I have, have been through far more difficult trials than I have. But I will tell you that when I am suffering, I'm not looking at the time I'm suffering compared to the light of eternity. And then this, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, but the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Even suffering and the circumstances that bring the suffering are temporal. And when we look at circumstances, whatever they be, and what's suffering to me might not be suffering to you, and what's suffering to you might not be suffering to me, but when we take our eyes off the things that are eternal, when we take our eyes off the Lord and we start looking at our circumstances, we're going to fail every time. But it's when we see things, and then once again, I'm reminded of that song, when things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When the things are, are present circumstances, be their suffering, grow strangely dim. When the circumstances we're in that sometimes are overwhelming us will grow strangely dim when we focus, when we focus on the Lord Jesus. And that's what the Church of Smyrna is encouraged to do to look to him, to look to him. Let's go back to Revelation. Verse 
Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. You may have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The Lord Jesus has never lost a single saved person. Nor will he ever. Let's look at Romans 8. I love this passage. It's one of those passages every time you're going through trials or difficulties, I believe you should read. And we're going to start with verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. I once read this verse to a young man who was suffering mild suffering looking back over the years but to him it was great suffering he stayed in bread three days depressed as a matter of fact at what the trial he was going through and i and i read this verse to him he goes well i understand that all things work together for for the good for god i'm just not sure all things work together for my good and at that time my bible knowledge wasn't extensive enough to turn to the verse we read this morning about love when paul says it's not It's not yours I'm interested in, it's you. Well, that's true of God. That's true of God. If we had God's knowledge, what we see happening to us, we would understand. The problem is our knowledge is limited and imperfect, and the little bit we can see, we are overwhelmed because we don't understand what's happening. But God has absolute knowledge. He knows exactly what we need. And he's absolutely perfect in the way that he does things. So it says, all things work together for good for them that love God and are called according to purpose. And then he's going to show us why. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say, then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We talked a little bit about that this morning. Is Sometimes we turn to God and we go, God, I'm suffering here. Why don't you love me anymore? Well, God says, I loved you enough that I gave you the very best thing I had. I did not spare my own son. And Paul says, if God gave us the very best thing he has, why will he not give us everything else? That's good for us. God has, God says, in the big concept of things, we often quote the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but everlasting life. I actually had someone say, Yeah, I know God loves the world, but I'm not sure he loves me. Well, you're included. God loves you. And I personally believe that if I was the only person on earth that needed a Savior, God would have sent his Son to save me. Because I know that God loves me. And I would hope that you understand that God loves you, that God loves you. Verse 33, who shall lay anything in the charge of God's elected is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, 
yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, which also maketh intercession for us. Notice how many times a resurrection is a proof piece that God is for us, that we are justified, that we have something to look forward to, that God's doing the right thing for us every single time. What, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or pearl or, or sword? As it is written, for thy sakes we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's a tremendous passage. It's a tremendous thought. God's proved his love to you. He's guaranteed eternal life because he gave his son to pay the full payment. There's nothing else to do. Turn back to Revelation with me, if you would. Verse 10 closes, Be thou faithful in death, and I will give thee the crown of life. He'll give you the crown of life because his son has paid. His son has paid the price for us to have eternal life. Verse 11, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Once again, it's plural. Once again, it's something that applies to us. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Not be a hearer only, but be a doer, as we heard earlier this morning, to apply it to our lives. Are we, are we fearful? The command to stop fearing applies to us. Are we worried about tribulation and what's coming? The command is to stop fearing, to stop fearing, because there's a crown of life waiting for us because we serve a resurrected Savior. We serve a Savior that has promised that where he is, we will be with him also. And then the overcomer, he that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. Revelations 20, 15 defines a second death. And the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Second death here is defined. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murders and warmongers and sorcerers and idolatries and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstones, which is a second death. That's Revelation 21.8 if you're taking notes. And the promise to those who overcome is they shall not be hurt by the second death. We often fear death. Let's, let's go to John 3 for a second, if you would. It's very sad to go to someone that you're well aware is not a believer. You go to their funeral and they talk, oh, they're in a better place when you know well that they're not. And sometimes they know they're not in a better place and there's just wailing and mourning and terrible things. John 3 and verse 14, if you would. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you know the story of the fiery serpents, if the Lord sent fiery serpents as judgment to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they were being bitten and they were dying, and the serpent was cursed in the garden and the serpent was a curse to them, and yet when the Lord comes to Moses and he tells him what to do, he tells him to make a serpent of, the br of, of brass and put it on a pole and put it in the middle and tell the, the nation of Israel to do what? To look and live. And what did they have to look and live at? They had to look and live at the very thing that they thought was cursed and at the very thing which was causing them to die. And so then the Lord says this, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And as we come to 1 Corinthians 1, we see that the idea of a crucified Messiah was a curse from Galatians, but was anathema to them. It was a stumbling block for them to have to look to the very thing. And then finally, what was the greatest thing? The greatest thing man fears is death. The greatest man fears is death. And what did they have to look like at? They had to look at a crucified Messiah. A crucified Messiah. It's a dichotomy. They can't, the last thing, the Messiah was supposed to come and rule and reign and bring life. And yet he says, unless you can look at that thing that you fear the most, the snake, even so you must look at the thing you fear most, death. Because it was through weakness that Jesus Christ conquered death. And there at Calvary, when he shed his blood and died, he conquered death for you and me. If we place our faith in, in him, we will have eternal life. We will never fear the second death because he's conquered death. And he offers us eternal life. There's no reason for a Christian to go through fear of death. Because the Lord himself says, look at him. Death has been conquered. He's raised again. He's paid the price. There's no longer a need for us to fear death. He's a risen Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you for your word. Father, we know that there are folks who are suffering and we don't want to make light of that. And we know there are no magic answers no magic potion pills. Suffering is never easy. And yet, Father, we thank you that it's temporary. And it's particularly temporary in the light of eternity. Oh, Father, we don't know what you have planned for the church of North America, but we look around the world and we see those churches that are suffering are thriving and growing and being added to daily. And we look here in North America and we see a church that's not being added to very often. We see a church that's comfortable. And so Father, we don't know what your plan is for us. But Father, we'd ask that if persecution is what would bring the gospel message to more ears, we'd ask that you would bring persecution. 
And then, Father, we would hope that we would fear not in that persecution, that we might look to him who's first and the last, who died and lives, the one who conquered death and the curse of death, the one who shed his blood for our sins and forever paid the penalty, the one who rose again and sits at the right hand of God on high. Oh, Father, we meet with those who, know, who do not fear death and do not fear persecution that might even lead to death. Because, Father, we know that absent from the body is present with the Lord. Oh, Father, that we might be encouraged in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might have the things of this earth grow strangely dim as we look to the light of his glory and grace. Father, help us not to look at things which are temporal, but the things which are unseen and eternal. Father, we give you thanks again for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.